This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, this is out of control. This is crazy. There is now an AI disc jockey. You kidding me? I heard it on the radio. Spotify has rolled out, this was on the Howard Stern show, uh, this artificial, you know, intelligence robot thing that is programmed based on one staff employee to sound like a radio DJ. And the words were fine, but the delivery was so stilted that I couldn't take it seriously. It was like, I have a song that you may uh, appreciate, particularly if you grew up in the 60s. You know, if it was a normal cadence and it sounded like a real person. And then there were interviews with various disc jockeys saying, you know, well, no matter how good this thing is, it doesn't have soul. It doesn't have, you know, the special touch that we bring and we curate the records and so forth. And even Stern, you know, was saying, wait a second. This is an unofficial disc jockey. I'm a disc jockey. Like, everybody has to go through that calculation. What about if a year from now, this thing is fabulous? Then you don't have to pay overtime. You don't have to have a a staff kitchen, you know. Um, By the way, hope you had a good weekend. And hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. Most of the segments are online. The flip side of AI, it's like anything else. It's like nuclear technology, you know, can power a city and can also be used to blow up a city. Uh, you know, it's you got to look at the bright side and the dark side. Well, the bright side is that advancements in AI are now enabling it to detect uh, breast cancer, signs of breast cancer during a screening that doctors miss. And so, you know, compared to human radiologists, this has the ability to see things that are missed by human doctors. And that's really quite amazing. Of course, there are the usual caveats here. Um, For example, clinical trials are needed. And, um, you know, maybe it's good as a second or third reader of possible breast cancer. But uh, right now, it doesn't have the ability to replace the actual doctors when women come in for breast cancer screenings. Anyway, on a... uh, I was going to say on a lighter note, but it's not light at all. It's actually quite sad, but not shocking. Um, Kellyanne Conway and her husband, George Conway, confirming a page six report that they are uh, going to get a divorce. Now, things got so heated between them when Kellyanne worked in the Trump White House and Conway was, you know, going on MSNBC and writing pieces denouncing her boss. I mean, it was just an amazing spectacle. Um, that when Kellyanne wrote her book, and I interviewed her uh, about the book, she said that George's daily deluge of insults violated our marriage vows to love, honor, and cherish each other. And, you know, I did get the impression that, sure, George Conway felt very strong about what a disaster Donald Trump's presidency was, but his wife worked there. 
And he did seem to be a little carried away by the intoxication of fame and TV lights and all of that. Uh, on the other hand, they've been married for 22 years. They have four children. They say now it's amicable. I hope that's true. The weirdest part of this story is Donald Trump going on True Social and saying, congratulations to Kellyanne Conway on her divorce from her wacko husband. Uh, I'm sorry, who does that? Mr. Kellyanne Conway. Free at last, she has finally gotten rid of the disgusting albatross around her neck. She is a great person and will now be free to lead the kind of life that she deserves and it will be a great life without the extremely unattractive loser by her side. I'm sorry, this goes beyond politics. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, vegetarian, you love Trump, you hate Trump. Who posts a congratulations? I know he once dubbed him from the, uh, the husband from hell. I remember that. But who posts a congratulations when somebody's getting divorced? I'm sure the Conways would like to have kept it low-key, but that proved impossible. Um, you know, so he takes this parting shot, extremely unattractive loser. I don't know. Uh, I'll leave it up to all of you to decide what you think about that. Speaking of the 45th president, on Saturday night, he gave the keynote address at CPAC. And by the way, you know, he won the CPAC straw poll easily. That's because the CPAC gathering itself was a Trump convention. I mean, a lot of other candidates stayed away, including Ron DeSantis, including others. And he came and everybody there loves him. CPAC is not what it used to be. It is a, It has been sort of taken over by the Trump forces. So the former president spoke for an hour and 45 minutes. The hall was mostly packed, but not 100%. And he said things like to the audience, and to the television audience, which, by the way, the whole speech was carried by Fox News. There'd been some question about that, you know, because of people been writing about this Fox News kind of trying to keep Trump off the airways. Well, he got a lot of play on the airways on Saturday night. Um, but the amazing thing is it didn't make much news. I watched some of it. It was kind of like a greatest hits. Things were fabulous when I was president. Things are horrible now. The only way for things to be fabulous again is to put me back in the White House. He said, they're coming after you. I am your retribution. So do you think the former and perhaps future president might be looking to settle some scores? He did a little gaggle uh, with reporters at CPAC, and somebody asked him, well, what if you get indicted? Will you stay in the race? He said, oh, absolutely. I won't even think about leaving. Probably it'll enhance my numbers, but it's a very bad thing for America, very bad for the country. Uh, I don't believe he would drop out if he gets charged in one of these multiple investigations. And I think it would rally the MAGA base to him even more. Now, here's a piece from Axios saying that President Biden has grown so close to his volunteer muse, John Meacham, that he tried to bring the presidential historian into the White House. You know, John Meacham, been around a long time, former editor of Newsweek, and uh, involved in other endeavors as well as writing these uh, presidential biographies. Uh, he was on, he was, a, he was a contributor to Morning Joe until it turned out they helped Biden, I think it was with his convention speech. And my only problem there, I mean, I've known the guy forever, is that disclose it, you know, don't hide it from the public. So when that came out, Meacham was dropped or mutually agreed to leave MSNBC. 
And he is so close to Biden now. I mean, he had this 2018 book, The Soul of America, that Biden kind of picked up as his theme. And he often mentions The Soul of America. Um, They bonded uh, more recently. Meacham went to Camp David with Biden aides to prepare last month's State of the Union. Um, But he's working on a book, or he started working on a book about Dwight Eisenhower. And so the offer of, well, just come on to the White House staff doesn't look like it's happening. Uh, A White House official said the president speaks to a wide range of historians. Uh, Princeton historian Sean Wilentz recently joined Meacham in helping conceptualize, that's an interesting word, some of Biden's speeches, particularly having to do with democracy. Um, And look, it's not unprecedented. I mean, first of all, it's not unprecedented for presidents to have a sort of a informal gatherings of historians to help them, you know, put their job into better perspective. But also, most famously, Arthur Schlesinger um, worked for JFK. And then when, you know, he was a prominent historian before that, went on, obviously, to be even more prominent. So that's the latest on John Meacham. Larry Hogan, you may have heard, going on CBS's Face the Nation yesterday, said he will not run. For president, this is the former two-term governor of Maryland, leaving office very popular, huge critic of Donald Trump. Uh, He said, the stakes are too high for me to risk being part of a multi-car pileup that could potentially help Trump recapture the nomination. In other words, if too many people run against Trump, you know, he just divides the opposition. And, you know, I have to say, as somebody who thinks Larry Hogan did a good job as governor, um... He would have been a spoiler. He didn't have any chance of winning the nomination, not the way the Republican Party is constituted today. He's a very moderate Republican. I mean, conservative in some ways, to be sure. Uh, Let me move along here to story number one. I think this is important because I can sense, with my spidey sense, a shift in the politics here. I mean, when Joe Biden made that sort of triumphant secret visit to Kiev and was walking in the streets with Vladimir Zelensky, Um, It was a great moment for him. It was a great moment for the country, I think, uh, to have our president side by side. But by the way, since then, Janet Yellen went there. Merrick Garland went there. What has it become like the cool thing to do? It's like, hey, I haven't been there. I should go on a secret unannounced visit. (laughs) Anyway, um, he assured the Ukrainians that America will stand behind that besieged country. But now... The question really is how long. So as the New York Times puts it, for all of the president's bravado when he was abroad, the politics of Ukraine back home are shifting noticeably. And for the White House, worryingly. I didn't know that was a word. Uh, Polls show public support for arming the Ukrainians softening while the two leading Republican presidential candidates, Trump, DeSantis, increasingly speaking out against involvement in the war. So you would think that the fact that the Ukrainians are bravely fighting right now. There's almost hand-to-hand combat uh, for this town on the eastern border to try to keep the Russians from recapturing it, as well as, you know, fighting off the missiles and the bombing of civilian targets. So you would think that would make people feel like, okay, well, the Ukrainians are worth investing in because they're willing to fight and die for their country with lots and lots of volunteers Um, you know, this is the existential battle for survival. But 
in terms of the domestic politics here at home, and, and look, it's understandable. This war has dragged on for a year. It could easily drag on for another year. It could easily drag on for another two, three years. Look how long the Vietnam War lasted. And there's war fatigue, and there's the bill, the, the tab, the tens of billions of dollars that uh, the U.S. keeps spending on helping Ukraine. So there is still a bipartisan coalition on the Hill favoring Ukraine, but when you have the Republicans divided, I know I read that poll to you the other day, uh, how something like six in 10 Republicans feel like it, it should be a limited time frame, shouldn't be a blank check. Well, nobody wants a blank check, but that's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot. Um, so House Republicans, you know, now in the majority, of course, pressing Pentagon officials at two different hearings about spending on Ukraine, grilling them about where the money's going. I don't have any problem with that. We don't want fraud, waste, abuse. Um, the Ukrainian government is worried enough that Zelensky is trying, as of this piece had not succeeded, and you'd certainly hear about it if he did, to set up a phone call with Kevin McCarthy to make his case to the leader of the House Republicans. Uh, here's a poll by AP. Public support for Ukraine, meeting in America. 60% last May, 48% now. Share of Americans who think the U.S. has given too much aid to Ukraine, 7% a year ago, 26% now. And 50% in Fox News polls said American support should continue for as long as it takes to win. 46% said time frame should be limited. And as I said, there's a real partisan divide here. So, Biden is certainly still has a consensus in the country, but how long will that last? I mean, that's really the question, and that's what Putin is banking on. You know, the Americans, they're soft, they'll want the money for themselves, it'll seem like a faraway war, they'll gradually cut down how much uh, we're giving to Ukraine. When the president did a rare interview, it was with uh, David Muir of ABC, um, he was asked about many Americans wondering how long they could keep spending on Ukraine. And here's what Biden said. I know the MAGA crowd is. The right-wing Republicans are talking about this. We, can do, we can't do this. We find ourselves in a situation where the cost of walking away could be considerably higher than the cost of helping Ukraine maintain its independence. And that's the way I look at it, which is, you think this is a lot of money? Let's see if, uh, if Putin were to be successful in Ukraine and then trying to He's already talked about resetting the border with Poland. And when you get into NATO members, uh, the war becomes wider, more dangerous. Uh, we're talking here about a nuclear power. Uh, so in the meantime, John Kirby was asked at one of these briefings um, about support on the Hill. And he said, yeah, there are a small number of uh, members of, on Capitol Hill, in the House Republicans specifically, that have expressed publicly their concerns about support for Ukraine. But if you talk to the House leadership, you won't hear that. And you certainly aren't going to hear it on the Democratic side, and you don't hear it in the Senate. In fact, Mitch McConnell and Michael McCall, who's the Republican uh, from Texas, who's chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, they have pushed Biden from the other side, that he's not doing enough for Ukraine. That he's not moving fast enough. And this is what I feel like. If you're eventually going to give them the F-16s, do it now. Don't wait six months. If you're eventually going to give them the Abrams tanks which now are in the process of being sent to Ukraine, why didn't you do it five months ago? I mean, this whole business about not prov unduly provoking or angering the Kremlin is out the window. Well, what are they going to do this worse? They've already got 300,000 
soldiers committed to Ukraine. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Number two is an interesting case study on this same subject that appears in National Review. And it's a look at Josh Hawley, the Republican senator from Missouri. He was on Fox and he said this, the truth is that Joe Biden and let's face it, congressional Republicans have spent over $100 billion and counting on the Ukraine war. And meanwhile, the folks in East Palestine, Ohio, have poison in the water, poison in the air. I'm just going to pause there because the two are not related. It's a great talking point, right? Biden went to Kiev. He didn't go to East Palestine. I don't know why he hasn't gone. You know, somehow the media have turned this into, if you don't personally show up, you don't care. In fact, the Biden administration has done a lot. Um... And I'm going to come back to that subject later in the podcast. So, Holy goes on to say, uh, I would just say to Republicans, you can either be the party of Ukraine and the globalists, which is like a curse word in GOPs, or you can be the party of East Palestine and the working people of this country. I mean, sure, it's a metaphor, but, you know, this is pretty strong language by Josh Hawley. It's time to say to the Europeans, no more welfare for Europeans. Um, so this piece on National Review describes this as pitchfork populism. But the main point of the story is how Hawley has flipped, some would say evolved, over the last year. February 24th, 2022, the day that the Russian forces invaded. Hawley said, Russia's brutal assault on Ukraine and invasion of its territory must be met with strong American resolve. The Biden administration should sanction Russian energy production to a halt and help arm the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Uh, A few days later, he told reporters, the most important thing we can do is arm the resistance. Shut down Russia's energy sector. Russia's a gas station. That's what it is. It's not a country. It's a gas station. Um, We need to turn it off. So what happened in that year, other than maybe the politics within the Republican Party, shifted? And, you know, there are several other quotes from a year ago about arming the Ukrainian resistance. It's in the strategic interest of the U.S. to prevent Putin from achieving his goals in Ukraine. We have to thwart those goals. So when asked about this, let's see if there's an explanation. Um, I don't think, he said he never envisioned that the U.S. would spend so much money in the first year on Ukraine. Which strikes me as a kind of a fig leaf bit of a cover story. When he was making those bold pronouncements right after the invasion, what did he think? That we'd give him $10 billion and then the thing is over? I mean, that would have been wishful thinking. He says, we've given $113 billion. All of Europe combined is 80-something billion. We can't do that. And from a foreign policy perspective, do what we need to do in East Asia. To say nothing about what we're seeing with East Palestinians, he comes back to that. I would say right now, I'm not open to any more aid. It needs to stop. So he's not even saying, you know, let's be more careful. 
Let's set a time frame. Uh, he's saying not another dollar. That is quite a flip. I mean, that to me is a 180. Um, Holdy goes on to say, we're now literally writing checks directly to their treasury. We now have people talking about regime change in Russia. What people are talking about regime change in Russia? I mean, good luck with that. It's just Afghanistan and Iraq and, frankly, Vietnam all over again. I just think it's, frankly, insane. Well, you may agree with Senator Hawley. You may not agree with Senator Hawley. But I would say good for National Review for holding accountable. And National Review obviously supports aid to Ukraine. But still, it's a Republican member from its own side calling him out and pointing out how different his rhetoric now is from a year ago. And then finally, he says, this is a nation, uh, an exercise in nation building. We're basically running the show. And I don't think that's true. We did do nation building in Vietnam. We did do, try to do uh, nation building in Afghanistan. We tried to do nation building in Iraq. They were all failures in the sense that these were countries that didn't have an established tradition of democracy. And yes, I know there's been corruption in Ukraine over the decades and so forth. But we're not nation building. They have a sovereign nation. They have a democracy. And they are trying to not only preserve that democracy, they're trying to preserve their country. All right, let's get to number three. So CNN reports that a guy uh, appointed by Ron DeSantis in Florida to this oversight board uh, having to do with the Disney Company's special tax district, you know, Ron DeSantis, the governor, fighting a battle uh, with Disney and finally giving the state more authority. Uh, I mean, it had kind of a free reign and didn't have to pay any taxes and so forth. Um, so then you have to have an oversight board. So the guy or one of them appointed by the governor of Florida is named Ron Perry, P-E-R-I. And apparently Perry, according to CNN, has made past attacks on LGBTQ people. Uh, CNN is describing him as an Orlando-based former pastor and the CEO of The Gathering that he called homosexuality evil and spread conspiracy theories suggesting that tap water can make a straight person gay. This is news to me. I better write this down. So why are there homosexuals today, says Ron Perry? There are any number of reasons, you know, that are given. Some would say the increase in estrogen in our societies. You know, there's estrogen in the water from birth control pills. They can't get it out. That was last year. This is not like digging up, you know, a tweet from 10 years ago. The level of testosterone in men broadly in America has declined by 50 points in the past 10 years. So maybe that's part of it. Uh, and he also called homosexuality shameful, linking it to disease. Quote, there are a lot of unhealthy effects of a homosexual lifestyle. There are diseases, but it goes beyond that. He compared abortion to the Holocaust. He blamed homosexuality for the fall of the Roman Empire. Well, he's entitled to his own opinions, but is that going to affect the job that he does on this state board overseeing Disney? Should it affect it? Um, it's, not, it's not like he hasn't broadcast these opinions. It looks like there's plenty there. And I hate that phrase, homosexual lifestyle, because it presumes there's a choice as opposed to people are born or inclined from birth to be a certain way. Um, so I wonder, you know, given that the Republicans control the Florida legislature and are looking at a lot of very conservative 
legislation in this session, which if passed, and probably will given the majority there, would form the basis of Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign. He said, look, I did this in Florida. I did this and I accomplished this. You know, I, and I also did a um, news package, and we replayed it uh, yesterday on Media Buzz, of Ron DeSantis' hostile relationship with the media, with the national media, how he's gone at it with Andrea Mitchell, how he went at it with 60 Minutes, um, how sometimes the media are unfair to him. Um, and I asked Brian Kilmeade, you know, does this help him in a Republican primary? And Kilmeade kind of said, yeah, because a lot of people on the GOP side hate the press, don't trust the press. So if they see DeSantis battling the press, uh, that would be helpful to him. Um, you know, Donald Trump's the one who pioneered, you know, the press as the enemy of the American people. But DeSantis does it differently. He punches back hard, but he also takes action. He's trying to tighten libel laws in Florida, make it easier to sue. I've talked about that on the podcast. So that's story number three. Let's get to number four. And I kid you not, another Norfolk Southern derailment in Ohio. Now, either that's an unbelievable coincidence or this air, uh, this excuse me, uh, railway line has a lot of problems, or there actually are a lot of derailments, and they just don't get attention unless they are of such a toxic uh, nature, such an environmental disaster as the one in East Palestine. There were hazardous chemicals on this latest train, but fortunately, those weren't the cars that derailed. And there were no injuries. So it's not going to get a lot of attention, but it does, you know, renew the spotlight on these train derailments. Meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg is playing defense on the way he does his job as transportation secretary. Obviously, he was late in going to East Palestine. And, you know, I'll just repeat it. The fact that he shows up or Biden shows up or Harris shows up or anybody shows up, doesn't necessarily make the lives of the people better, but it is, a, it is optics. It is a way of showing you care. This is on your radar screen that Washington hears you, that Washington sees you. And that was the mistake. But he's now punching back. Gave an interview to CNN's Isaac Dovir, and he said that while the criticism on the East Palestine is fair, the critics are mostly not. And he's rolling up his sleeves and swinging. Says Mayor Pete, it's really rich to see some of these folks, the former president, these Fox hosts, who are literally lifelong card-carrying members of the East Coast elite, whose top economic policy priority has always been tax cuts for the wealthy, and who wouldn't know their way around a TJ Maxx if their life depended on it, to be presenting themselves as if they genuinely care about the forgotten middle of the country. So he takes a couple of shots at Fox, says he should have gone to East Palestine earlier, said he failed to anticipate the political fallout and also from, you know, other problems like all those flight cancellations, Southwest, the shutdown of the air traffic control system. But he's decided, you know, the best defense is good offense. And as the um, CNN piece puts it, Buttigieg came into the cabinet knowing it would be an odd transition. He's the only winner of the Iowa caucuses. And one time, Jimmy Kimmel guest host to take a lower-level cabinet job. It's true. The uh, transportation secretary is usually 
uh, one of the less high-profile jobs. It's certainly not state, defense, justice, or treasury. Um, he just didn't realize how much focus there would be on a cabinet role that was once seen as mostly apolitical in past administrations. I can think of Democratic presidents um, who have appointed uh, Republicans to that job and vice versa. Now, to the left, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is the corporatist compromiser without the vision or guts to go as big as he should. By the way, he works for President Biden. He doesn't get to make all the decisions on his own. To the right, he is the embodiment of elitist abandonment of real Americans because most of the people in that East Palestine area, are it's, it's Trump country. They voted for Donald Trump. Uh, he's hopped up on his own grandiosity, and he thinks more about social engineering than transportation. So Marco Rubio is calling for him to resign over intentional ignorance of the derailment in Ohio. Donald Trump Jr., I mentioned this a few days ago, insisted he got the job only because he was that gay guy. Even some Democrats like Joe Manchin are raising doubts. Uh, here's a, a quote from an unnamed Democratic member of Congress. Buttigieg's appeal in 2020 as a fresh new face like Carter, Clinton, or Obama who wanted to get past the divisions and move the nation forward. That was his appeal. It's sad to see him becoming a partisan brawler on Twitter and cable news. He's become the most polarizing member of Biden's cabinet. Now, Buttigieg doesn't have to worry about getting fired. Uh, White House put out a statement, I believe I read this the other day, but talking about sickening effects on his family. Um, but still, this could, excuse the pun, derail his ambitions. I mentioned that he had moved to Michigan and obviously is eyeing a Senate seat there. So Buttigieg, I guess, said it wouldn't have mattered substantively if I went there earlier or not. But he said sometimes people need policy work and sometimes people need performative work. And to get to this level, you've got to be ready to serve up both. That sounds like um, a pretty frank admission that he dropped the ball, that he blew it, frankly, on getting there. You know, as we've talked about for the first 10 days after the derailment, Buttigieg didn't even mention it. But in fairness, he did 23 interviews with the media during that period, and they didn't mention it either because the mainstream media also, sort of East Coast elite, and you throw in Los Angeles, um, also was slow to recognize the importance and the, the level of humanitarian and environmental disaster that happened in this small town in Ohio. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Uh, one last point. Uh, Pete Buttigieg saying that when he had, that his visit had nothing to do with the fact that Donald Trump had been there before, the day before. But also, he found maddening that people actually talked about or wrote about the boots he was wearing. Somehow I missed this. Who cares what shoes I was wearing when I was there to draw attention to an agenda that will save lives on our railroads? 
Oh, as in for any suggestion that uh, it was pressure from the Trump camp, he said that's bull. We were already going to go. All right, let me wrap up here with number five. And let me just begin by saying, I never thought I would see this story on the front page of the New York Times. Certainly not the stodgy times of, let's say, 20 years ago. So it begins thusly. It takes a lot of people to make a movie. You've got the director for overall vision, the gaffer on the lights, the set decorators, costume designers, and so on. And when those costumes come off and things start to get a bit bit steamy, that's where Jessica Steinrock comes in. Well, she is, and the story is about, an intimacy coordinator. I did not know there was such a thing. Uh, That was my first thought. My second thought was, how do I get one of these jobs? Are you kidding me? Intimacy coordinator. Uh, What such a person does is facilitates the production of scenes involving nudity, simulated sex or hyperexposure, something you wouldn't want to be seen in public, much like a stunt coordinator or a a fight director. She makes sure the actors are safe throughout the process and that the scene looks believable. I'm sorry, that's not much like a stunt coordinator. It's a very different kind of thing. And the story says, look, this has come about because of the Me Too movement over the last five years, and many productions wanted to demonstrate their commitment to safety. And by hiring such a person, you know, you show that you care and you're sensitive to the actor's feelings and all of that. So this woman, Jessica Steinrock, is quoted as saying that um, she went through a series, you know, she did a thing on Netflix and, you know, basically learned the job. And she, her mentor was Alicia Rodas on the HBO show The Deuce back in 2018. Somehow this has all escaped my notice. Um, and Alicia Rodas says in the improv world, which is what she did before, I guess. I was picked up a lot or kissed or grabbed or jokes were made about me that I didn't consent to. She said this on TikTok. And I was really curious if there were ways to navigate that better. So the first assignment for Jessica Steinrock, where she was mentored by this other woman, wait for it, a 40-person orgy on the TNT show Claws. She was thrown into the lion's den. Okay, I didn't know TNT uh, had 40-person orgies or orgies featuring any number of people. And I am not going to go back and look up this show because I never heard of Claws either. Clearly a failing in my cultural education. And then it lists a whole bunch of shows that Steinrock worked on, Sex Education, House of the Dragon, Bridgerton. Um, And... She answers such questions as, what do you do if an actor gets an erection? Or, if two actors are in an off-screen relationship, do they still have to follow the same protocols? Um, So, she always makes sure that uh, all of these women who have these jobs, they seem to be mostly women, don't know why that is, um, that they have to sort of level with the actors and actresses and feel empathy with how vulnerable they are. And I suppose it's a good thing. But I guess I'm amused by the New York Times uh, treating this as a uh, big, huge cultural phenomenon 
as I am by the fact that the job exists itself. Hey, once again, hope you had a good weekend. Uh, hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. We had a lot of good stuff on the show. I work very hard on it, and I work very hard on this podcast. So the fact that you're spending this time with me is a good thing. And I'm very grateful. I'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.